And now I'd like to introduce today's special guest. In the 112 years that the Canadian Club has existed, we've welcomed many business leaders to our podium. In our first 100 years, over 90% of the captains of industry who spoke here were men. In the last dozen years, though, we've had the opportunity to hear from an increasing number of women business leaders. The reason is not that we have an affirmative action policy here at the Canadian Club. It's simply that there are significantly more women filling senior corporate positions and distinguishing themselves in that role. Women have indeed climbed the corporate ladder and are now occupying a number of those coveted corner offices. They are well represented, though not equally, in the executive ranks of business, government, and the not-for-profit sectors. Political office, well, that's another story for another day. But before we applaud the progress of women too vigorously, let's consider how they have fared on boards. The good news is that their numbers are strong on public sector and not-for-profit boards. But there's one boardroom where women are still banging on the door, not sitting at the table, and that's the corporate boardroom. Today's speaker, Deborah Gillis, will tell us how far women and companies have yet to go to achieve gender balance on their boards. She will tell us why it matters, not only to the women who are missing out on opportunities, but to the companies who are missing out on a great pool of talent and wisdom. She will share and interpret the results of recent research on the boards of FP500 companies done by Catalyst, a nonprofit organization that has become the leading global resource for research and advice on the role of women at work. Deborah Gillis has played a major role in building Catalyst's presence in Canada and expansion into the United States. She has led Catalyst's Canadian offices since 2006 and became head of its North American operations early this year. Please join me in welcoming Deborah Gillis of Catalyst North America to our podium today. Thank you, Helen. Head table guests, members of the Canadian Club, and good afternoon, everyone. I am delighted to be here. It may be that I am caught up in the excitement of the election, but as I was planning my remarks for today's event, I remembered a young girl that I met several years ago. I was canvassing in Nova Scotia's provincial election, and she came to the door with her mother. After her mom explained that I was the candidate, the little girl looked up at me and said, I thought only boys did that. Quite frankly, I was stunned. Why, at seven or eight years old, had she already concluded that politician was not a possible answer to the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? There are certainly lots of good reasons why she might make that choice, <laughs> but gender shouldn't be one of them. I suspect that the answer to the question is not very complicated. Before that day, the only politicians she came across on the news or on her doorstep were men. And with no role models in sight, she drew her own conclusions 
about whether that door was open or closed to her. I share the story today because there's something very powerful in its simplicity and because the distance between that little girl standing on a doorstep in Cape Breton and the women sitting in this room in the heart of Toronto's business district is actually very small. It's small because they share a common experience, a visible, a lack of visible and influential role models who by their very example send a message that says, no door is closed to me. And so at the core of my remarks today is a message about lost opportunity. The lost opportunity for women and business that results from the simple fact that there are not enough women directors in corporate Canada. Not enough women directors to change the tone and substance of boardroom discussion and decision making. Not enough women directors to strengthen the quality of corporate governance. Not enough women directors to encourage and inspire a new generation of women leaders. And not enough women directors with the power and influence to strengthen the bottom line of your business. Because the more we learn about the role and influence of women directors, the more compelling the business case becomes. In fact, Catalyst Research tells us that companies with more women directors are more likely to select leaders from a broader, more inclusive talent pool, one that is more reflective of customers, clients, stakeholders, and shareholders ultimately positioning themselves for better financial performance. Catalyst's 2007 bottom line study found that on average, Fortune 500 companies with the highest representation of women directors financially outperformed those with the lowest. And not just by a little. Return on equity was 53% higher, return on sales, 42% higher, and return on invested capital, 66% higher. In 2004, we found a similar correlation. When looking at women corporate officers and financial performance of Fortune 500 companies. And in a study released in July, Advancing Women Leaders, the connection between women board directors and women corporate officers, Catalyst found that women directors are a predictor of women corporate officers, and in particular, on the growth of women in the line positions that are critical for advancement to the CEO and top leadership roles. In short, more women directors, stronger financial performance. More women directors, more women corporate officers. More women corporate officers, stronger financial performance. 
sounds like a very appealing win-win for women and business. One that was powerfully articulated by the women directors that we interviewed for the 2007 Catalyst Census of Women Board Directors of the FP500. And yet, their voices and our research tell us that Canadian businesses are missing an important opportunity to support improved performance and good governance. Consider these facts from the 2007 Catalyst Census. The representation of women on boards in Canada grew by one percentage point between 2005 and 2007, from 12% to 13%. Women hold almost 15% of board seats in U.S. Fortune 500 public companies, but only 10% of public company board seats in Canada. And over 43% of FP500 companies in Canada have no women on their boards. These numbers tell us that getting in the door continues to be a challenge. But it's also true that the struggle doesn't end once that door opens. Only 3% of public company board chairs are women. Women chair less than 7% of public company audit, nominating governance, and human resources compensation committees. And fewer than one-third of companies have multiple women on their boards. The all-important critical mass that women directors told us was so important for their sense of inclusion, but more importantly, for their ability to be heard and to contribute in ways that improves the quality of governance. In the words of two of our interviewees, one voice is always different than three voices or two voices or five voices. Sometimes, if you're the only voice, they tend to sort of move on. It's almost as if you were invisible. I do think that there is value in having more diverse people because the listening changes and the conversation changes. And if you don't have that divergent opinion there, those questions and those perceptions will never be expressed. And so the question becomes why? When the correlation between women in leadership and financial performance is increasingly clear, when it's clear that gender diversity supports principles of good governance, why? Why has the representation of women on Canadian boards grown by a mere half a percentage point annually since 2001. Well, if I ask the majority of CEOs, board chairs, or search firms why there aren't more women on boards, I would bet that their first answer would be, I'd love to have more women on my board. I just don't know where to find them. I could tell them they're in this room. <laughs> So allow me to translate what's behind that statement and more importantly, what it means for women. The first point, and this was a message that we heard clearly from the women we interviewed, 
is that women continue to be excluded from the professional and community networks that are critical to success. In the words of one woman director, the biggest impediment to women being on boards is that they are not part of the network. And the network, what used to be called the old boys club, is there. It's alive and well and fully functioning. And it's really no surprise that she and so many other women feel this way when we consider that Catalyst Research shows that only 15% of corporate officer positions in Canada and less than 5% of CEO and president titles are held by women, the traditional path to the boardroom. The truth is that when searching for new directors, CEOs, committee chairs, recruiters, return to the same small group of usual suspects. In fact, when we analyze who filled board seats in the FP500, we see that this is one area where Canadian companies have a really strong environmental record. Recycling directors <laughs> who sat on at least one other board. In 2007, over 30% of public company board seats were filled by individuals already serving on a board. And women directors were recycled in public companies at a greater rate than men. 40% of female directors brought on to FP500 boards sat on at least one other, as compared to 29% of their male colleagues. But what if we looked beyond the usual suspects? What if we looked beyond the C-suite and considered all of the women corporate officers in the FP500 and top 100 subsidiaries in Canada? The pool of potential candidates would expand from 39 CEOs, chairs, vice chairs, and presidents to 1,002 women who have expertise in IT, finance, law, human resources, and compensation. The very skills that are increasingly in demand to manage some of the most pressing governance issues facing Canadian boards today. We'd capture the women who are successfully and strategically running large business units, and of course, we'd capture a group of talented and capable women who have the potential to contribute the perspective of customers, consumers, and over half the Canadian population. In fact, I would argue that instead of trying to make the case for why more women should be appointed to boards, we should start asking the business leaders who are in a position to make change happen to explain why not more women? Why not leverage the experience, expertise, and perspective of women? Why not change the quality of discussion and debate around the boardroom table? Why not shift the paradigm from one that rewards who knows you to one that rewards what you know? Because this shift is possible. 
It is possible if CEOs and board chairs commit to making change happen. It's possible if they work a little harder and search a little deeper. It's possible if they insist upon diverse slates of candidates. It's possible if they create and update skills matrices to determine what competencies are currently represented on the board and what other skills are needed. And it's possible if they look beyond the C-suite to that expanded pool of candidates to fill those competency needs. Now let me be clear. The women we spoke to are not looking for a handout. They said the first criteria for being a director must always be competence and contribution. They shared a keen sense of responsibility to be part of the solution. They're prepared to step up and identify other women candidates. They're prepared to act as role models and mentors to other women, to set the tone at the top, to encourage women seeking directorships to do their homework, know why they want to be on a board, and what they would contribute, to develop the skills and profile they need, to seek director education, to contact recruiting firms, to gain experience on nonprofit and community boards, to expand their networks so that they will be top of mind when someone is asked, who do you know? And finally, to become their own champions. They are just asking for each of us, the individuals in this room, with the power and influence to chart a different path, to remember that little girl I met on a doorstep, to remember the voices from the boardroom, and hold the door open, not only because it's the right thing to do, because it's the smart thing to do, for women, for governance, for business. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Deborah. And now, uh, as we promised, um, and I'm going to thank you more, and actually we'll have other thank yous a little more formally later on, but now we have some opportunity for questions to be answered. And I have a few questions, and I think there are more coming, but let me start you off with some questions that, um, well, let me be honest. I asked the first question. <laughs> and the first question is, uh, about other kinds of equity besides gender equity and how important it is uh, to consider that and whether uh, in your catalyst research and in your own anecdotal um, work, whether you've come across other forms of equity being as large a problem as the, uh, the issue of gender equity for boards. Well, first, uh, are other forms of equity a problem? Absolutely. In fact, more difficult than it is in many ways for women because the numbers of candidates get increasingly smaller. 
Is it important to expand diversity on boards beyond gender? Absolutely, for exactly the same reason that I articulated about women on boards. We know that diversity, well-managed, yields better results. What we want to see is diverse perspectives represented around boardroom tables. We know that drives change in organizations. And we know that the quality of conversation changes when there are diverse points of view around that table asking questions that simply wouldn't get asked if everyone sitting around the table looked exactly the same. So absolutely needs to be a focus and something actually Catalyst has done a series of research studies on looking at career advancement for visible minorities in Canada. Thank you very much, Deborah. I'm going to ask you another question now about uh, legal means of um, uh, ensuring balance on boards. Under a Norwegian law passed four years ago, women must fill 40% of the country's corporate board seats and Norway now has the highest ratio of female directors worldwide. What do you think of this approach to ensuring gender balance, and is this an approach that should or could be tried in North America? Um, it's an interesting question. One of the pieces um, that it's important to note, when that legislation was announced, there was doom and gloom in Norway, and a big part of the reaction was, We'll never find women to sit in these places. There aren't. Where will, we, where will we find them? The same question and challenge that I've talked about here, and lo and behold, there were plenty of women that were supported and trained to take on those roles. Is it a model that we would recommend for Canada? What we encourage our member organizations to do is, first of all, define and understand the business case for why advancing gender diversity in your organization is important. This is an issue, as I said, that speaks directly to the bottom line. It's good for business. And it's when companies understand the business case that change happens. The challenge with legislative solutions is that organizations may comply. They've got targets that they need to meet. But the cultural change, the understanding and acceptance that they're doing this for the right business reasons is not there. And so we really encourage members, understand the business case, set targets just as you would for any other business strategy that you have in place, see how you're doing, monitor your progress, hold people accountable for results, and make change where you need to. How would you say Canadian women as board directors compare to their counterparts in the United States? And I think what the questioner may be getting at is there, um, we're not looking at the numbers alone, but at the behaviors that maybe get women onto boards more in the U.S. than in Canada. And once they're on those boards, are there any differences in mm -hmm. characteristics? Well, as I said in my remarks, there is about a five percentage point gap between women on public company boards in the U.S. and here in Canada. And so we do trail behind women in the U.S. I think part of the reason for that may be that in Canada, a large part of our business sector is dominated by what we might think of as traditionally male-dominated industries in the resource sector, for example, industries that have traditionally not been open and friendly to women. That may be part of the answer. The same uh, part of the issue is also we've been focused on this question in the U.S. for many years. They had an earlier tradition of talking about the challenges facing women in business. So in many ways, Canadian organizations are really now 
paying attention to the business case for diversity, and I suspect in the years to come we'll see that gap start to close. Okay, thank you. I'm going to uh, give the name of the questioner where it's been provided. So Donna Dasko is asking, what is the critical mass or the number, uh, and could you explain more about what happens at the boardroom table when there is a critical mass of women? So Donna, do you want to know the statistically reliable number? <laughs> <laughs> of course. The research and the anecdotes that we both have conducted and collected from the women we spoke to says that three women on a board is when it really makes a difference. So it's in that, you know, 30 to 33 percent range where you really start to see a difference. And what the difference is, is that for most women who are the only woman on a board, um, they would say and did say to us that they feel it's a challenge to get their perspective heard. They often feel that they are looked upon as the woman. And so when there's a question about what would women think, everyone kind of turns to that person <laughs> as though one woman can re represent all. Um, and the last piece is that when the critical mass is there, women say the tone and acceptance changes. They're no longer viewed as being there because they're a woman. It's accepted that they're there because of their experience, contribution, knowledge, etc., and that additional voice allows their perspective to be heard in a way that it just isn't when they're the only one. A question from Howard Brown. How do we encourage more women to seek public office, and how do we encourage women to seek not-for-profit boards as a way of getting, on, getting corporate board experience? I thought we weren't going to touch the public office one today. <laughs> well, there's lots of women there's here. There's curiosity. <laughs> there's lots of women in this room that would have terrific perspectives on that question. You know, I think that there are many of the same challenges, quite frankly, facing women in politics as there are facing women in business. And, uh, you know, there's clearly a power base in parties, structures that is often dominated by men, and it's difficult to break into that, whether it's fundraising. Uh, to support a campaign, whether it is getting to know the right people to help support a nomination process, whether it is the questions about is this the kind of life that I'd want to lead, the public scrutiny that goes along with it. So the same issues become increasingly important. Mentors, role models, support, organizations really focusing on the issue, parties focusing on the issue and showing leadership, I think become really critical to making that change happen. What's interesting about both politics and the question around community and not-for-profit boards is that community engagement in a whole variety of different ways, getting involved in issues in your community that matter to you, that you care about, that you're passionate about, give you an opportunity to build profile in your community, to expand your network in that community, and those activities can both help build your profile for political life, if that's what you choose, but also the network of people that you know to support your ambitions towards sitting on corporate boards. Okay. From the Loretto College students, what advice can you give young females who are interested in starting their own business and breaking out into the business world? Well, that's easy. <laughs> You know, my advice to you would be, first of all, there's anything that you want to do, you can do. The opportunity is there for you to succeed. The truth is that every woman that we speak to 
who says that she's been successful in whatever field of endeavor that she's chosen, whether it is starting her own business, working in a corporate environment, at a community level, in politics, says find mentors and champions who can help you along the way. People that you trust who can give you advice, whether that is a man or a woman, Often groups of advisors, people call them often their personal advisory board, can be really critical. Find people that you can turn to to offer advice on all stages of your career. From Ann Donaldson Page, she wants to know your top three recommendations on what we women can do to get on a board. Well, I shared some of them in my remarks. The first thing is do your homework, know what board you're interested in doing and what you're going to contribute. Men and women are interested in finding new candidates to sit on boards, and they'll be happy to help. But when you're asked, or they're asked the question, why would I recommend Anne? It needs to be more than, I know Anne, I met her, she's a great person. What can Anne contribute to that board? So be clear about what you can contribute. Build your network and profile, whether that is, as I said, through community engagement, getting out there, serving on not-for-profit boards, and network. Be out there, be on the radar screen, talk to people, let them know, speak to recruiters. Ensure, again, that when the question is asked, do you know someone who can sit on this board, that your name is going to be top of mind. But not only top of mind, that that individual can say, and here's what she can do. Okay, and I'm going to ask one final question from Arlene Pearlie Ray. To be uh, an agency that is part of the, oh dear, I'm going to... United Way campaign. <laughs> Thank you, Arlene. They must have a diverse board. Could the Chamber of Commerce not call for or reward companies that also uh, uh, call for diversity on their boards or that actually do it? That's the question. <laughs> it's an interesting question. I think what's really important is for organizations like the Canadian Club, as they've done here, to create opportunities for awareness about what the issues are, to get out there, to call for more diversity, um, and to be supportive of bringing diverse perspectives into organizations. I was actually asked at an event a week or so ago about the Catalyst Board of Directors and the Catalyst Advisory Board here in Canada about why there were so many men on our board and why the boards were both chaired by men. And my answer to that question was, well, actually, uh, it, they are CEO boards. And as the statistics that I shared earlier suggest, there are very few women CEOs in both the U.S. and Canada. So the next question is, well, then, why is it a CEO board? And the key answer to that question is because we need men who are leaders of some of the biggest businesses in North America to step up to the plate, to understand the business case, to communicate it, and to really um, drive that change to happen. So anything that organizations who speak to a business audience, like the Canadian Club and others, can do to get that message out there about why it's important for business and why we need greater diversity would be really helpful. Thank you very much, Deborah. <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, 
just stay with me for one minute. Um, those are thought-provoking questions, and you gave us some very thought-provoking answers, too. So I want to thank everyone who asked a question, and thank you for your answers. And now I'd like to ask Ian Scott of the Canadian Club Board to formally thank you on behalf of the Canadian Club. Ian? Thank you, Deborah. Um, I'm also a board member of Catalyst, uh, and I'm very, very proud of that uh, presentation. Um, I'd also like to thank all of you for your questions and comments. I'm sorry we actually ran out of time. Uh, it was quite a few years ago that uh, Margaret Atwood uh, said that uh, we still think of a powerful man as a born leader and a powerful, and a powerful woman as an anomaly. Observing media coverage of recent political events south of the border might lead you to the conclusion that little has changed in this regard. While women have made clear advances in business and politics over the decades, the perception still remains that these achievements are somehow anomalies. And as long as it is generally considered unusual for a woman to be a CEO or to sit on a board of directors, the glass ceiling will remain in place. So, as Deborah has well shown today, the future depends on moving past these perceptions and embracing meritocracy. It has become almost commonplace to say in an era of ever-increasing competition that Canadian businesses need to be smarter and more innovative. We do need to be smarter when it comes to considering the makeup of our boardrooms. And a more diverse board is a more innovative board. We all believe that promotions and appointments should be based on competence and contribution. If we keep this in mind when we make our most important executive decisions, Ladies and gentlemen, we all will win. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. This wraps up today's program, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. On behalf of the Canadian Club, I thank you for joining us today. This meeting is now adjourned.